This is part six of a six-part series, the final episode. If you're just joining us, go back and listen to the first five episodes. In this episode, we're going to look at where exactly the crabbers are right now and what this year's season holds. Previously on Drilled. We get overextended too. I've done it myself uh, over and over again in my career. You know, I'm doing it right now with the new boat, you know, taking a big financial risk. So with all this stuff going on with whale lawsuits and tomoke acid and everything else. This is the story of two industries, one struggling to survive, the other the most powerful in human history. The outcome of their battle may well dictate what path we take in dealing with climate change. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled Season 2, Hot Water. On a sunny spring day, fishermen are filing into a large room off the back of the Lutheran Church in downtown Sacramento. They look a bit shell-shocked. They've just come from days of negotiations between the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Center for Biological Diversity to settle the whale entanglement suit. And it's not looking good for the crabbers. The rumor is spreading that the fishery will be closing early, statewide. It'll close even earlier next year. Ben Platt will later tell me that this is the biggest threat the fishery has faced since he was a kid, or maybe even ever. There are hushed, worried conversations happening in every corner of the room that raise in volume as the beer gets flowing. But there are also happy reunions happening here. This is an annual event held the night before the state's annual fisheries forum every year. Tomorrow, we'll bring more arguing and negotiating. But tonight, Lori French is in her element, moving between the crowd and the kitchen in her apron. She's happy to have changed the menu from fancy food to normal food. She's particularly proud of a large platter of perfectly fried fish. Ben Platt isn't there, but I hear he's driving down for the meeting in the morning. Dick Ogg is in his usual jeans and hoodie, coordinating with the fish and wildlife staff. He'll take them out to look for whales soon and start the long road towards shifting the fishery to accommodate changing migration and feeding patterns. Vic Scher, the trade group's attorney, is there with his wife, Noah Oppenheim, the Fishing Trade Association director, is getting pulled into a new conversation every two minutes. It's the first time I've met him in person, and he's younger than I expected, with what can only be described as a fisherman's beard. Crabber Larry Collins is staffing the bar. His pals jokingly call him the King of San Francisco. He's pragmatic about the whale suit. Well, that one year that started all that crap, we had the blob, and there wasn't any crab up above. And so all the crab boats in the state came to fish here because there was some crab here. And the whales were here eating anchovies. So it was like all these things came together, but now it's all started and it's gathered momentum. And, you know, the crabbers are bad guys. And, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's too far along. You can't stop it. One point of discussion not at this fish fry, the climate lawsuit which is still ongoing and which has divided the community a bit, according to Lori. It's very, very polarizing, and it's, yes, things are changing. When I talked to Ben Platt about it, it was clear that the suit had made reluctant activists out of them. 
I think Noah posted something on Facebook about it when they actually dropped the lawsuit, and there was a bunch of comments about, oh, this is stupid, you know, or liberal, blah, 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 whatever. But, you know, like, that was the main comment I heard was like, well, how can you be a part of this if you've got, you know, a diesel engine in your boat? That's the kind of stuff that I heard. But I haven't heard much discussion on the docks, or nobody's asked me about it. I'm reluctant to be part of something that might anger a lot of other my fellow fishermen. But, you know, if I separate all that from the facts of the lawsuit and what they're trying to achieve, I believe it's the right thing to do. It also gets to the heart of the whale entanglement suit. Although that suit focuses on the crabbers and their gear, what drove the perfect storm of events during those years when whale entanglement spiked was climate change. Warming waters have fundamentally changed the marine ecosystem shifting everything from whale migration patterns to algal blooms and squeezing the crab fishery in the middle. The crabbers are still waiting for that federal disaster payment they were awarded in 2015. They're pissed off about the entanglement settlement and feel like the ones who bear the brunt of every problem. It's all gotten to be too much for some folks, and the fleet has been shrinking rapidly in recent years, according to Larry. There's hardly any of us left, you know. Last year, 453 boats delivered salmon and 53 boats delivered 50% of that. So basically our working salmon fleet, which was 5,000 boats in the early 80s when I started, is 53 boats. And Noah echoes this. We're losing more and more fishermen each and every year to either consolidation or to climate impacts or the inability to operate in, in a heavily regulated environment. I hear a lot of people saying, fine, have fun eating your imported tilapia pointing out that even if commercial fishing stops entirely on the West Coast, people will still want to eat fish and seafood. The California Water Project, which diverts many of the state's rivers down to farmland in the Central Valley, is another popular gripe at most tables. West Coast fishermen have the overwhelming sense that they are always outspent, outlobbied, and generally outgunned by environmental groups, by big oil, and by almond growers in the Central Valley. I mean, the water's, the water's going to build fish or it's going to build fortunes for almond growers, you know. And basically, we've made that, California's made that choice. Department of Fish and Wildlife Director Chuck Bonham says we need a broader, more systemic approach to supporting climate adaptation in coastal towns up and down the West Coast. There's a bigger discussion that needs to continue about what does it look like to help our rural coastal communities become more climate adapted? What does it look like to have the right wharfs and infrastructure for chillers and boats and how to prepare them for what might be the future. The climate lawsuit feels like a long shot, but also like one of their last hopes. Between demoic acid and whale entanglements, crabbers are staring down the barrel of extinction this year. The whale entanglement settlement has mandated an early closure for most districts of April 1st. If they see another start as late as their 2015 year, combined with the early closures, that would limit the season to four days, effectively shutting it down for the year. If the suit against the oil companies moves forward, it could set a precedent the industry absolutely doesn't want to see. If they're held responsible in this case for their contributions to not only the warming oceans, but also their role in decades of inaction on climate, they could be held responsible for multiple other impacts on cities, businesses, and people all over the world. So they're expected to fight it hard. 
They're battling about a dozen of these climate liability suits at once. But the rest are all from cities, counties, and states. Local governments wanting oil companies to help pay for seawalls and other climate adaptation strategies. Any one of them moving forward could spell trouble for the oil industry. Just getting into the discovery phase of a suit could unearth documents and information that would tell both attorneys and the public even more about what oil companies knew and when, and about their strategies to suppress and confuse information. Here's attorney Vic Scher on why so many of these suits have been filed in the last couple of years. What's compelling about these cases is the strong relationship that scientists can now give us between emissions and climate change-related impacts on the first hand, the ability to attribute emissions to particular companies on the second hand, and this compelling culpability narrative that starts really with the ramp up in emissions that scientists call the great acceleration in the 1960s. So far, despite claiming that these lawsuits are causing them undue financial harm, oil companies have been increasing profits since the Paris Accord was signed. They've also been ramping up production in the past two years. The U.S. has become the number one producer of oil globally. U.S. companies are now also net exporters of energy. So when people talk about climate change as a global problem requiring a global solution, it's hard not to look at the number one global supplier of fossil fuels. And while oil companies have accused the plaintiffs bringing these cases of scapegoating them for climate change, in fact, they're pushing for oil companies to cover only the percentage of damages that can be reasonably linked to them. Oil companies, meanwhile, insist they have zero responsibility and should not be required to do anything at all about climate change. Ultimately, this case represents a choice that societies will increasingly need to make. Which communities are worth saving? How much power should one industry have over all others? Which activities do we reward as a society and which do we discourage? For Lori French and Ben Platt, it's not just about a sense of right and wrong, or even about helping the industry recover from all its recent troubles. It comes back to the community itself, this attachment they have to it, this loyalty, this sense of being extended family, the sense of responsibility they have to it, their desire to protect it, and to ensure that it outlasts them. We care about what we do. We care about for the next generation. And Peter's like, yeah, we are environmentalists. Those of us that have been making a living at fishing or in the industry and around it in these coastal communities for most of our lives or all of our lives. Unless you have your head in the sand, you can't ignore the connection between some environmental causes and, and what we're trying to do to make a living. If we want to be managed by the best available science, then we have to do our part too. And so if there's anywhere where we can make improvements, we should be willing to do that. And I think our future really does depend on it. That's it for this season. We'll be bringing you update episodes over the next few months, and we'll be back with a third season in late summer, early fall. So stay tuned for that. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show was created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Rekha Murthy is our editorial advisor, and additional editing for this series was done by Julia Ritchie. The series was mixed by Bill Lance. 
music by Elliot Peltzman. Season 2 cover art was drawn by Angela Shea. Drilled is supported in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You can listen and subscribe to Drilled on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, don't forget to give us a five-star rating. It helps us find more listeners and combat pesky climate deniers. Visit our website, drilledpodcast.com, for behind-the-scenes photos and additional information about this series. You can also drop us a tip or story idea there and sign up for our newsletter. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Amy Westervelt. Thanks for listening. Thank you.